It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now let's get on with the show. Uh, this year we noticed that some of the more popular shows we have had have been on China, and it was time to revisit that, and maybe just from a, uh, a little bit different angle than we had before. And I think it becomes more and more apparent that uh, uh, some people like to simplify things as uh, this is this country's century and that's the other country's century. Uh, but it looks how the 21st century is fleshing out. That It's not going to be an American century per se, but it's also not going to be a Chinese century. But a lot of it is going to be defined about how the U.S. and China and the allies and friends and relationships that they develop, how we move forward together in the Western Pacific and also some of the resource-rich parts of the world that we both have a legitimate and honest uh, national interest in. And part of that equation are those things that are closest to China. And we're going to touch on some of those today. And our guest for the full hour is Mark Stokes. He is the executive director of the Project 2049 Institute. And as a stepping point for our discussion, I'd invite those uh, to go over to my home blog, where you can find a link to uh, one of their latest thought pieces titled Asian Alliances in the 21st Century. And we're going to use that as kind of a, a touchstone and a basis for the next hour's conversation. Mark, welcome to MidRaps. Hey, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. I hope everybody's having a good weekend. Hey, the uh, I put the extended background of my uh, homepage for you, but for right now, uh, over at the Project 2049 Institute, if you could just take a minute and describe for the listeners what the Institute does, uh, what goal it's trying to achieve, and some of the work that it's pushed out recently they might find of interest. Okay, well, first of all, we're a relatively new um, nonprofit um, uh, sort of a research outfit, uh, a, a think tank in the traditional in the traditional terminology. Um, and we uh, we start we stood up uh, in January 2008, um, and sort of carve out somewhat of a unique niche. We've uh, we, we tend to focus uh, on Asia in particular, uh, Asia Pacific region. Um, the goal is to try to look out at trends rather than Getting into the current politics of uh, of the day, but uh, so that, that the goals don't always uh, don't always do that. But, but we have uh, different people that focus on uh, on, on different aspects. Our um, uh, our, um, our our leader, uh, the head of the 2049 Institute, is Randy Shriver, um, who has uh, is formerly with um, uh, Office of Secretary of Defense uh, on the uh, China Taiwan desk. Uh, my former boss, actually, uh, many many years ago. Uh, and um, he's now with uh, Armitage, um, or he's, of course, closely associated with uh, Armitage, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage. Uh, and then um, we have another uh, individual, uh, Russell Xiao, um, who uh, helps us out on, sort of the re- re- on some of, a lot of our research, um, and then, uh, then myself. So we have three, uh, three full-time staff, and then we have some other associates that, uh, that also uh, conduct uh, some research for us. 
Um, my particular area of focus is on primarily on uh, uh, looking at Chinese military modernization with a particular particular emphasis on uh, from the space and missile space and missile forces, and then of course uh, Taiwan as well. But um, but we try to cover the whole region, uh, but tend to say somewhat focused on uh, on, on China. Uh, of course, the 2049, the title. Uh, again, trying to imply, uh, trying to look out, not necessarily the year 2049, but trying to look out you know, over the horizon, um, uh, but, uh, but also to be able to represent uh, the emergence of China uh, and the uh, influence that it has on the Asia-Pacific region, looking out over the next half century. Well, it's a, it's a pretty ambitious project to try and figure out what's going to happen, but let's kind of go back and set the background for, for what's going on with, with Taiwan and, and uh, or what we call the um, the Republic of China, and uh, how, why is that such a significant uh, part of what the Chinese are involved with, and, and what's the significance to the United States and to our allies? Well, I, of course, there's a historical legacy, um, and it's not just, of course, Taiwan and the Republic of China, but a lot of it's rooted in, in competition between the uh, Communist Party of China and uh, and the the Nationalist Party uh, of of China uh, that goes back to let's say you know as far back perhaps as 1911 uh, in a competition uh, political competition for sort of who's who has the uh, the right to be able to rule uh, all of uh, all of China. Um, of course, in the Civil War, after some exhaustive uh, uh, sort of long-term campaign against the Japanese, um, the Communist Party eventually uh, eventually um, was able to force the uh, the Nationalist Party off of off of the Chinese mainland and onto Taiwan. And of course, then you also have that enters a new uh, sort of a, a new part, which is sort of people that have been that inhabited uh, Taiwan for uh, for many uh, for centuries. Um, that had a, sort of a new dynamic. But uh, but the United States, of course, had supported the Nationalist Party for uh, for, for many years, uh, and in keeping with a one China principle. Uh, had recognized the nationalists, uh, the nationalists as being the uh, sort of the inheritors of of, of one China, and it wasn't until uh, pressure uh, by several different factions to be able to shift the recognition uh, within that one China principle from the uh, Republic of China to the People's Republic of China, and that occurred in 19, uh, formally 1979. But since then, it doesn't necessarily mean that the United States uh, would formally um, sort of abandon. Uh, Republic of China or Taiwan, um, and in its place, uh, instead of adopting sort of a two-China formulation, sort of a dual recognition, dual representation uh, policy, uh, in the place in terms of recognizing the People's Republic of China um, and acknowledging, uh, without necessarily formally agreeing to their position, that uh, the representative of one China, uh, the United States, in the place of uh, formal recognition, uh, enacted the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979. Uh, which states that uh, the United States, for all intents and purposes, would continue to treat Taiwan as a de facto uh, sovereign, independent uh, state, uh, but without having a lot of diplomatic trappings. But at the same time, also uh, outlined certain obligations on security uh, to be able, for example, provide uh, Taiwan necessary defense articles and services for sufficient self-defense, um, as well as maintaining the capacity to respond to the potential for uh, People's Republic of China, uh, a decision, an unfortunate decision, they can make to use force against uh, against Taiwan. So that's the uh, that's the political background that continues until today uh, in terms of United States obligations to uh, uh, provide uh, Taiwan with necessary defense articles and services for sufficient self-defense, and that's sort of the, the political context. And uh, the, the key thing to, to today in terms of our interests. Um, 
in assuring that Taiwan uh, has a uh, has a solid viable defense capability. Um, one of the principles, of course, is to be able to uh, deter or discourage uh, Beijing's uh, reliance on military instruments to resolve their political differences with uh, with Taiwan. Uh, and so the idea is to be able to continue to uh, uh, provide them with uh, necessary weapon systems. You know, that, that folds into uh, something that we, we saw in the news this week. Uh, it's, you know, it wasn't invented by, by Rumsfeld, anybody that read his recent book. He, he repeats it over and over about his, one of the, his big takeaway from decades of service in the government is that weakness invites aggression. And many times people will make decisions that result in weakness with a hope that it will prevent aggression. But history tells us over and over and over again that just the opposite takes place. And, uh, you know, whether we're talking about F-16s or their long effort to try to find some way to get an upgraded uh, conventional submarine capability, uh, we're positioning Taiwan to at least appear weaker and weaker. From the Chinese perspective, uh, is this making it more or less likely that uh, some type of aggression from Taiwan uh, may be a more viable option for them down the road? Well, this has both uh, this has both a a political component and a military component. On the political front, um, part of the um, we'll see a deal, but an understanding that Beijing may not have uh, liked or appreciated. But part of it was the assumption that after after 1979, with a shift in diplomatic recognition, uh, the United States continued continue to uh, sell to sell, uh, sell arms to uh, Taiwan, something that Beijing uh, doesn't like uh, at uh, at all. And in 1982, there was a, uh, an understanding uh, that was communicated via a joint, well, a joint communique uh, that we would reduce our arms sales quantitatively and qualitatively over time uh, to Taiwan. However, that was contingent upon Beijing providing an environment conducive to doing so, uh, which would mean sort of a peaceful approach. And the way that one demonstrates a peaceful approach is by reducing the military posture that uh, the People's Liberation Army or, or PLA uh, would have opposite Taiwan. And so on the political front, uh, because Beijing has not reduced its military posture opposite Taiwan, uh, in principle, there should be no hesitation whatsoever to be able to honor a request that, uh, that uh, the government of the Republic of China or, or Taiwan would make uh, for, uh, for arms sales in terms of what they believe are necessary for their defense. And so, in, in general, in order to um, encourage Beijing to be able to reduce the military posture and reduce that reliance upon use, potential use of force or coercive use of force, then uh, and certainly that provides a different, you know, the arms sales issue provides a disincentive for, uh, uh, for, for Beijing. Um, on the military front, um, one could argue about what Taiwan's requirements are um, till, uh, you know, till, till, uh, till midnight. Um, but, but in general, uh, you know, having a, a viable, the um, having a viable um, ability to be able to defend the uh, skies over Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait uh, is certainly uh, certainly reasonable. Their air force is uh, reducing their, basically, they, they're they're relying heavily upon uh, this large part of the air force is relying upon older F5s uh, that are aging, um, and being able to at a minimum replace the F5s out with uh, with F16s, uh, particularly for example with being considered, of course, would be Block 50, um, seems to be quite uh, quite reasonable. Uh, and Taiwan has done, or the, uh, their Ministry of National Defense has done uh, 
detailed studies on what the requirements are, using you know, basic cost and operational effectiveness evaluations on what they need. So the F-16s uh, seem to be uh, reasonable and measured, uh, sort of reasonable and measured, uh, measured um, initiative. Uh, and of course, on the, on the naval side, uh, Taiwan has long had a uh, requirement for at least eight conventional diesel-electric submarines, uh, and this goes back all the way to 1969. Um, but uh, this is one particular capability that Beijing seems to find particularly uh, distasteful, um, whether it's for political reasons or whether it's for true, uh, true military reasons, uh, presumably because of the complications that having a viable uh, submarine force uh, could, uh, could cause to Beijing any, any attempt by the PLA Navy to be able to blockade, uh, blockade Taiwan. Um, and so, but uh, but because submarines have a particular political uh, political tinge to them, uh, Beijing has gone out, out of its way to be able to block uh, block Taiwan uh, from acquiring diesel electric submarines. Um, they did uh, Taiwan's initial request to the United States for assistance in its submarine program goes back to 1990. Let's call it 94 between 92 and 94, um, and they and then it was finally uh, the Bush administration in 2001 agreed to assist Taiwan in its acquisition of these electric submarines. Didn't necessarily say uh didn't necessarily say sell through foreign military sales channels, but that was left open. But uh but that was two thousand one and uh haven't had much progress uh since that time, ten years hence. Well uh there's a current bill uh that's been introduced um in the House of Representatives to kind of push uh, and a quote an improvement, I guess, or enhancement of the Taiwan Relations Act, and uh, part of that seems to be in response to the fact that President Obama uh, has before him the decision that he says he's going to make fairly soon as to whether or not to go ahead and sell those Block 50 F-16C uh, slash D models to the Taiwanese. You want to discuss that a little bit? Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite aware about um, actually potentially two pieces of legislation uh, being forwarded, one on the Senate side and a broader one perhaps on the uh, on the House side. And uh, of course, part of it is uh, to be able to um, to be able to get some, some traction, uh, to be able to get some uh, relief on the on the sale to foreign military channels of, um, of, uh, of additional F-16s. Um, bear in mind, uh, what makes this a little bit strange is bear in mind that the United States uh, already approved F-16s for Taiwan back in 1992. Um, and of course, at the time, those those were basically block block 20s, uh, F-16 AB uh, midlife upgrades. And Beijing, as expected, reacted negatively uh, to this particular arms sale. Um, it's hard to say exactly what the what the effects were, uh, but in this particular case, what Taiwan is asking for is additional is an additional uh, 66 uh, F-16s again as a replacement for their uh, older F-5s. Um, and there has been, um, for I'm not quite sure the reasons, the exact reasons, but there has been some uh, delay in, in coming up with a decision. Um, but it appears uh, it appears that a decision uh, may be forthcoming. But it looks like at least at least an interim decision is going to be to be able to retrofit uh, Taiwan's or at least a, po a portion, if not all, of Taiwan's existing F-16s up to. Roughly, maybe block 50 capabilities, or maybe even more, if they approve the active electronically scanned array radar part of this, or AESA, which actually, if I'm not mistaken, actually takes it above block 50. Um, so this this capability, uh, if if it actually does go forward, um, 
is um, is significant, but um, but it still doesn't answer uh, Top One's um, legitimate request for additional F-16s. Going towards the uh, the D and Dime uh, diplomacy on, on page five of the Asian Alliances in 21st Century paper that uh, y'all put out, there's a really intriguing line at the bottom, uh, kind of prefaced with discussing balancing in relations with China. And it said that uh, it will take, uh, here's the quote, it will take sophisticated statesmanship that has been all, that has been absent in American foreign policy for decades, unquote. How are you all defining that term, sophisticated statesmanship, and, and what would be a good example of the practice that has uh, been missing for so long? Well, I have to go back. I don't know how to have it uh, right in front of me, but... Um... But in, in general, it, it's not clear whether or not, and, you know, taking this up to even a sort of at the 100,000-foot level, um, it, it's not clear that we really have a strategy, per se, for dealing with uh, our um, allies and friends and, and, and others in the Asia-Pacific region. And, and the strategy, uh, I guess one could talk about find a strategy as knowing what we want. In other words, sort of a perfect, sort of a perfect world. Um, it's not quite clear what what we really want. And so it's hard to really develop a strategy if you don't know what, what we want. And that's, a, that's an initial point. Our, our strategy appears to be more process or our goals appear to be more process oriented, meaning um, not necessarily push the region in a particular direction, but whatever problems or disputes that there are in the region, that use of force is not, uh, is not applied or used as an instrument to be able to resolve these, uh, these, these disputes. Um, and at this particular time, uh, since uh, or since many years, uh, since the Cold War, um, the alliance structure in the region has generally been uh, primarily bilateral in nature and ha haven't had a lot of cooperative efforts uh, in our in our alliances. Um, some could refer to this sort of a hub and spoke uh, hub and spoke model. But um, if you look at the uh, at, at the trends, and, and it's not quite clear if this is going to change all that much in terms of uh, trying to get more synergies uh, between the various uh, sort of allied partners and, and potential ad hoc coalition partners in the region. It's not quite clear that that's gonna, you know, how to be able to go back to get to develop more synergies. Of course, the, uh, in terms of balancing, there's at least a perception, of course, that, that China's power is rising, um, and it's unclear how things are going to turn out in the future in terms of how their power and how they're going to use their power. Um, and so it has been it has been proposed that one way of doing this is to um, to develop a hedge, um, and one way to hedge for it, of course, would be to develop more synergies that could be developed by by more uh, cooperation among allies and friends in the region um, until we get a better direction for how things with China could uh, could uh, could evolve. Um, and of course, there's also dangers in this because when you do have sort of a bandwagon effect, um, it has the potential, of course, to be able to raise threat perceptions of China and. Uh, Sort of intensify some of their mistrust um, that others could have in the region, but um, and, and that's that's where uh, really what it comes down to is, you know, how, how to how, how to uh, uh, on the one hand how to uh, reassure uh, allies and friends in the region that the United States is not sort of um, moving out of the region or sort of um, uh, reducing their, their interest in the region, but at the same time, uh, how does one uh, attempt to be able to reassure China that's not necessarily trying to Contain, you know, uh, contain them uh, per se, or, or, or trying to uh, sort of go in on the offensive uh, against the Communist Party of China. But um, but it requires some degree of diplomacy and some 
some, some, some more thinking about how to uh, how to do it. One of the things I got out of the, out of the paper is that China seems to be focused on on at least three main areas. One, of course, we've just discussed with the with the Taiwan issue, but they also are concerned with the uh, with their north northern waters, uh, that area between them and Japan, and then say up to up to the Koreas, and then their their uh, South China Sea issues, and and I understand part of the uh, Obviously, one of the paper is to discuss the alliances to help us as a uh, as, a, as an alliance, which uh, I think you're indicating doesn't currently exist, but we need to develop rather quickly uh, to deal with those issues. Can can you kind of am I on the right path with that? And can you kind of describe uh, what the problem is with getting the various alliances together? Well, well first, yeah, let me yeah, start yeah, off with, with one of your initial 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 comment. Um, the uh, I would say that China's primary concern at this particular point uh, on what they would view as territorial and sovereignty disputes, uh, and that's probably the clearest uh, possible flash, the clearest possible potential flashpoints in the future. And of course, these include um, the uh, the islands, you know, the, the southern islands uh, uh, off off of Japan, with, uh, in the Jap- you know, the Japanese call them the Sakakus, you know, the Chinese uh, would call them the the Diaoyu uh, Islands. So that would be one uh, potential flashpoint uh, in the in the future. Of course, Taiwan being primarily a sovereignty issue, um, that that being another another potential flashpoint, and the one that that's been around for quite a while, uh, but it's gotten into the news a lot more recently over the last year or so uh, due to incidents with the Philippines and, and Vietnam and, and others in Southeast Asia. But that that's the South China Sea, uh, South China Sea issue. There's still some debate about how, you know, is this what's, what, China, what the Chinese would call a core interest? Has it been declared clearly as being a, a Chinese core interest, or what does that really mean, the core interest? But one, one uh, also shouldn't forget that there are other uh, possible uh, territorial disputes that are, are still unresolved until today, like, for example, with India, with the two areas of, with India. Um, so this is sort of one way to sort of frame the issues is, is to put things in the context of these territorial sovereignty, sovereignty uh, disputes. But in terms of why, um, you know, why Japan, for example, or uh, or South Korea, or um, or whether countries in the Southeast Asia would not want to do more together, I, I think it, I think a lot of it has to do with the the perception of sort of the band uh, that if there's more bandwagon, uh, more bandwagoning, um, and more cooperation between the alliances around China, that it could be perceived by China as being uh, extra threatening, um, and from some uh, allied. Uh, perspectives, something they don't necessarily they want to be a little bit more careful of, and so they tend to handle things in uh, sort of with in sort of particular dispute areas, um, and, and in more in more of a bilateral context than, um, and of course, uh, in a sort of a regional wide context. With the possible exception being Southeast Asia, uh, we've had some um, a little bit more sort of discussions within the uh, Southeast Asian context uh, on a on a regional basis. The um question we brought up um, a couple of times in the previous episodes we have is and a lot of it probably has to do with the fact you know the young nation versus the old nation America obviously being the the young nation has to do with a focus on on history and uh, less concerned about the trend of the moment but the proven trends in the past for instance uh, a few of the uh, Naval War College professors we've had on board as guests emphasize the fact that it drives them a little batty that the present-day people that are studying Mahan the most 
are Chinese. They're not as interested in the buzzword of the week. They want to, you know, look at what has been you know, proven as a, as a fact and to work. But even our near-term history, we've kind of forgotten about. For instance, y'all brought up a couple of times something that you know may have been a passing interest from our perspective, but persists to this day uh, amongst the Chinese, but also their neighbors. And that was the carrier surge in 1996. Could you flesh out a little bit of that, or why that took place, and why that continues to be a, an ongoing issue with the Chinese and how, they're, how they look at maritime power and their contested zones, so to speak? Uh, you mentioned it was a carrier surge, was the words that you mentioned? Yeah, the surge of carriers off Taiwan in 1996. Okay, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, uh, first of all... Um, but bear in mind, I, I come at this issue a bit more from an Air Force uh, Air Force perspective on where sort of a, a bias on uh, sort of the, Air, Air, the Asia-Pacific region really being an aerospace theater uh, due to the large the large spaces and, and, uh, and the need for speed uh, to be able to get to point A to point B very, very quickly. Um, and so I'd sort of put that as a preface that there may be some, some biases on this. Um, but one thing I mentioned, when you mentioned that sort of the Mahanian uh, theory in China um, I haven't looked at in, in detail exactly where sort of those pockets of Mahania theory are, are, are coming from. But when, if you look at, uh, in a similar sense, uh, the United States or other countries, uh, you have bureaucracies within the People's Liberation Army um, in, in which, you know, they're basically for trying to get a, a uh, you know, maximize pieces of the, uh, of, the, of the defense budget. And so obviously uh, the, the PLA Navy is going to be making a strong argument to be able to get a larger part of that, uh, larger part of that uh, defense budget, and so it's going to be making cases for, uh, um, not sure what the term of RB, but sea control, for example, or extending their uh, their ability to operate further from the shores all the way out, you know, in, uh, uh, for example, out, out way out into the Pacific, or perhaps all the way down uh, through the South China Sea and all the way to the Indian Ocean, for example. To be able, for example, to maintain security of sea lines of communication and uh, for escort duty and for, um, you know, for um, you know, crisis stability and uh, issues like this. But um, but it's not, you know, how, how this all plays out in terms of what direction that China is really going, it's not not clear yet. Um, my, my view, where a lot of their um, a lot of their efforts are, are going, bear in mind, submarines are, appear to be a major area of uh, of investment within within the PLA. But beyond that, um, the, the the investment that they've been making and the growth that we've seen uh, in their missile force, particularly their conventional missile force, second artillery in particular, um, is uh, to, to me one of the most significant trends within the PLA. Of course, this missile force being one that would op basically delivering firepower, <clears throat> delivering firepower from inside from inside China, uh, for example, around the periphery. Um, of course, the, the best example of this being the anti-ship ballistic missile uh, that uh, that appears to be nearing completion of its research and development, if not already having a rough design that's already been approved, at least starting to be um, uh, sort of being uh, introduced into experimental units uh, to be able to sort of work out uh, bugs in terms of training and tactics and doctrine and things like this. But uh, so the question is, you know, why was that assigned? Why was that role was a, a when it comes to sea control, or at least sea denial, um, it seems to be a pretty significant capability, but why was this maintained within the second artillery and not turned over, for example, to the PLA Navy? Um, 
but uh, that, that's that, that's a question I've had. And um, but you know, there's another thing to watch in terms of uh, whether investing, for example, on the nuclear side uh, with their uh, uh, new nuclear submarines. But the thing about ballistic missiles in general is that people look at, uh, for example, the new new trend within second artillery, and they fo focus on the anti-ship ballistic missile. But that's not the only sort of progress that uh, that the Chinese are making in, in their airspace modernization. Uh, because being able to sort of take some of the missile systems that they have right now, being able to deliver firepower uh, accurately, let's say, for example, with a circular error probability of, let's say, rough notionally 30 meters, 50 meters, uh, and be able to go take take that capability that, they have, for example, they deployed that has a 600-kilometer range or a 1,000-kilometer range, uh, for example, in a Taiwan scenario, and be able to take that capability uh, that they could array against Taiwan and be able to use that to enforce some of the, uh, China's position, some of their other territorial disputes, for example, with Japan. Um, and as time goes on, perhaps even even further, uh, for example, being able to be, uh, apply uh, some of these capabilities in terms of prison decision strike all the way up to Guam, for example, um, or perhaps other other areas in uh, in Southeast Asia. And then uh, with that sort of being uh, we would think of some of these capabilities as in, in the context of stealth. In other words, to be able to attain the upper hand and gain air superiority, you need to be able to suppress air defenses. Um, and uh, ballistic missiles uh, can be viewed in, uh, in this way. So with the idea being they at least you know, want to be able to um, go after uh, air defenses or be able to go, other air, uh, go after air assets, whether they be on the ground or on, uh, or on the ocean. With the idea, again, being that if you can control or at least deny an adversary uh, control of the air or um, then you're, you have much greater freedom of movement uh, on the surface, whether it's uh, land or whether it's uh, ocean. And so the idea, to, to me, the key emphasis of the key trend seems to be gaining the ability uh, both on the ballistic missile side and, and perhaps in the future on the air side. Bearing in mind that you, if you can knock out runways, um, then your requirements in terms of uh, fighters go down to a certain extent because if you can, again, if you can pin down um, uh, air defenses uh, with this Patriot or, or other systems um, with ballistic missiles, and again, it reduces some of your requirements for air assets. But they, this seems to be um, a, partic a particularly significant area that China is moving into. It's sort of more on the uh, on the air front um, with sea, you know, with uh, sea uh, sea denial. I guess what people would call anti-access uh, area denial um, being um, being um, Primarily, to me, driven by this ballistic missile, uh, this air, the air side of things. Yeah, I, I thought one of the interesting points that was made in the paper was the was uh, this is sort of an aside to, the, to some of the main conversation, but but the uh, the uh, importance of the vertical uh, capability of the F thirty five that 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 uh, because of the various threats to um, carriers and air bases that that capability is something we should really be uh, be much more concerned about than we seem to be. Well, yeah, that's certainly one way to address address some of the runway, you know, some of the airbase availability issues. Uh, what would be interesting would go back through history and to be able, to, you know, to figure out how how did we resolve some of the problems we had in um, uh, in NATO uh, when we had the, uh, for example, uh, this, this, uh, in the Cold War when you had the Soviet forces in East Germany and you know Czechoslovakia. You know, how do we how do we manage the airbase availability issue then? Because some of the some of the some of the uh, problems um, go go back go back that that far, um, but uh, and so that's of course that's when the AV, so the AV8 uh, Harrier had had its start. Um, 
but certainly uh, be, being able to reduce reliances upon longer longer runways is um, is, is one is one way to address the issue via you know very short takeoff and landing uh, uh, airframes. But it's, it's not necessarily the older an uh, the older answer because the one of the problem. Um, because theoretically, if you have if you have a conflict, uh, God forbid, uh, if you have a conflict in the Asia Pacific region, you're gonna you're gonna lose your uh, runways. Uh, odds are you're gonna lose your runways um, fairly early on in the conflict. But it doesn't mean you're gonna not have access to those runways throughout the course of the conflict. Uh, because one of the ideas, of course, to be able to ride it out and then to be able to eventually to be able to roll back and be able to reintroduce um, be able to reintroduce air, air assets into a region after you're able to suppress the uh, Suppress the source of those of, of that those long-range precision strike assets, but that's also one of the reasons why, in terms of the stability issue, why China's reliance on ballistic missiles aren't just appear to have some significant some significant destabilization facets to it, because the what, what, the best way, um, the ideal way to be able, um, well, the most effective and efficient way to be able to defend against ballistic missiles, is not necessarily hit them in the air. Of course, that's that's part of a broader way to look at it, uh, in terms of defending against them. But primarily, be able to go after the uh, infrastructure on the ground, and um, that has significant um, implications in terms of uh, nuclear. You're basically crossing nuclear thresholds and be able to um, ensure that there's a, a clear, clear-cut firebreak between uh, between the two. But in general, this reliance on ballistic missiles would force a, a potential adversary, whether it's the U.S. or whether it's uh, India or whether it's other other potential adversaries in the future, to be able to. Um, uh, Basically, it, it increases the, um, the the tendency or the temptation to be able to go after uh, these particular this, the, the missile infrastructure on the ground, uh, which has uh, again it has um, uh, stability uh, implications. So to me, I mean that's one of the things to look at uh, is to um, you know, for example, the United States and uh, former Soviet Union both completely destroyed all of their ballistic missiles and ground-launched cruise missiles. Um, uh, under the uh, INF treaty that was agreed to in late 1987, and then ultimately uh, destroyed all uh, ground ground launched uh, ballistic missiles and land attack cruise missiles uh, with ranges between about let, let's say 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. Um, and so, in this vacuum created by the INF treaty, uh, this also it's I'm not sure if it's coincidental, but this is also where China developed. What in effect is the most significant ballistic missile uh, and uh, ground launch cruise missile capability in the world today? The uh, kind of going back to the, or actually wandering into the aerospace field for a minute here. Uh, you know, one of the more interesting stories is you can have a habit is of getting very comfortable with your your sense of dominance. You know, a perfect example of that was early in the Vietnam career, you had you know, pilots flying around in blaze orange flight suits until they realized, well, if we go down, it's kind of hard to uh, evade and escape when you're wearing blaze orange. Uh, in a similar sense, especially with our experience of the last 10 years, we've become very, very comfortable with our perceived ownership of what is really uh, the ultimate global commons, and that's the elect electromagnetic spectrum and also space uh, for both communications, ISR, the whole gambit. And we're, we've seen a lot written in the media about the Chinese going after the cyber commons and their ability to uh, conduct cyber operations and the potential for that down the road. But there is an equally dangerous crutch that we lean on with our reliance on the electromagnetic spectrum, 
and the space access. How serious are the Chinese looking at that, and are we really focused on that vulnerability to the degree that we should be? Uh, the, the related, but let me focus on the uh, electromagnetic spectrum issue first. Um, it's, a t it's tough to get your, uh, or at least for me, tough to get my hands around it. Um, but as a general principle, um, one, one should expect the, the, PLA, the PLA to be looking at um, means of, um, of denying the United States uh, access to, basically to be able to maintain situational awareness. Uh, and uh, having access to um, communication systems um, as well as uh, command and control and using a wide variety of means to be able to uh, uh, disrupt or, or, or deceive our, uh, our, our sensors and ability to, to use information. And um, both on a technological sense and also just on a sort of stratagem, stratagem sense. On a technological sense, um, Basically, uh, I mean, the, the Chinese have been, and this is nothing new, they've been doing this since at least early, early 90s, if not even further, but, but heavy emphasis in, in the studying, for example, um, all the sensors that, uh, that a potential adversary would use, including the United States, whether it's space sensors, uh, for example, uh, remote sensing, remote sensing uh, satellites, electro-optical or synthetic aperture radar, uh, studying you know, the means of uh, how the whole, uh, whole animal chain works in terms of downlinks and um, and how information is relayed and how it gets to uh, a commander in, in, in usable form, all the way to, for example, to radars, uh, studying radar, uh, U.S. Uh, radars, uh, whether they're missile defense radars, for example, or, or phases ray radars that could be, you know, maritime phase ray radars or whether it's land-based phase ray radars. And, of course, uh, all the way to uh, tactical data links, for example, uh, whether it's Link 16 or, uh, or Link 11, um, studying these issues um, in extreme, extreme detail. And they publish a lot of their uh, analyses. And then from there, uh, uh, also indications of, of looking seriously at ways to be able to disrupt, um, disrupt whether it's sensors or whether it's uh, communication systems. Uh, disrupt, uh, for example, in the area of uh, being able to, having, having the ability to be able to jam, uh, being able to jam synthetic aperture radar uh, sensors, whether it's um, uh, satellite-based or, or airborne-based. Uh, being able to dazzle, for example, electro-optical satellites by using um, high-powered high-powered lasers, um, or being able to, uh, again, on, you know, on the uplinks or, or downlinks, you know, to jam uh, jam these capabilities, or uh, in a worst-case scenario, of course, being able to um, use kinetic kill vehicles to go after and physically physically um, uh, negate some of, some of these uh, sensors, or, for example, uh, GPS, uh, you know, navigation satellites being able to jam um, our navigation satellites. And there are, appear to be uh, a number of units around China's periphery that um, have this particular role and, and mission. And, of course, all the way to links, you know, Link 16 or, or, or joint tactical data links, um, again, looking at uh, ways to be able to go in um, and to be able to find, you know, find ways, whether it's broadband jamming or, um, uh, or, or high-power jamming. Be able, of course, that's going to be difficult to do, but still trying to figure out ways that they can go in and, and be able to interrupt um, and interrupt some, some uh, data links. Or there's also, of course, the possibility of being able to use the old Soviet model of uh, introducing bad information into some of our networks. And the same thing, of course, for communication networks. Uh, most people tend to focus just on the cyber aspects. Um, and, of course, that's another area where, where China is investing, investing heavily. Um, and in general, when it comes to just simply monitoring the electromagnetic and magnetic environment, because that's really the fundamentals uh, of this whole thing, they have a vast, 
vast um, bureaucracy uh, organization that, uh, of course, similar to ours, divided up into communications intelligence and then um, electronic intelligence or electronic reconnaissance, to use, uh, to use their term, um, that is up, upwards, for example, the Jill Staff Department, third department, has upwards of about 130,000, if not more, uh, officers and, and, uh, and men who are dedicated to be able to monitor communications in, uh, in the region. Um, and, of course, the same on uh, electronic reconnaissance, uh, where it looks like they've gone uh, at least some experimental platforms, you know, launching to be able to into uh, space, uh, be able to get a space uh, space-based capability. And so, um, on the electromagnetic spectrum front, they appear to be investing heavily and to be able to, at a minimum, be able to complicate uh, the ability of potential adversaries to be able to uh, sense and communicate uh, in a crisis environment. So that's the Do first they- one. Um, I just I just had a little little bit of a, a side angle question there. You know, going from a defensive to a, an offensive mindset, perhaps. Uh, does China have the same level of vulnerability uh, on the electronic electromagnetic spectrum that we do? I.e., do they have uh, more redundant systems, perhaps more survivable systems, or are they equally vulnerable uh, and reliant as we are? They, uh, they, um, I would say, and they have some advantages. Um, let's say, for example, because in in general they're going to be, if they're going to be operating off of their coast, then uh, they'd be operating in similar parameters that we that we would be, and so we have certain advantages. In other words, the more extended operations that they have, when they be forced to use, for example, HF uh, to be able to communicate with, uh, or satellite, for example, I mean, if they actually do expeditionary operations way, way off the shore. Um, or in other regions, uh, that of course presents uh, significant vulnerabilities, uh, and so that that could be exploited. But the advantage they have of conducting operations within on, you know, from from their own shores, like for example with this anti-ship ballistic missile and, and other capabilities, uh, is that you know they have many many other they have a significant redundancy built in all the way to fiber optics, um, all the way to I mean to, for example in terms of command and control multiple multiple command and control centers that would allow for some graceful degradation of command and control if it did get into a, a fighting, uh, a major major scrap, um, all the way from uh, uh, HF, you know, adaptive HF, uh, trouble scatter, um, and uh, all the way to very, very short-range uh, sort of stealthy sort of uh, uh, radio systems. Um, and, and then, of course, there also appear to be looking um, looking uh, quite a bit at, I'm not sure what the term of art these days, but um, basically that realm of near space. Um, the, the, not sure if there's a internationally agreed upon definition of where space begins, but but generally it's about 100 kilometers, um, 100 kilometers in, uh, in altitude between the atmosphere and the space. But that area between about 20 kilometers and 100 kilometers, what's called near space, um, is uh, is an area that China is looking at, at uh, quite a bit um, in terms of deploying. What we call like high altitude airships, basically uh, 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 types of uh, air platforms that um, aren't necessarily that would not uh, have the same sort of propulsion systems that we would have in our uh, conventional aircraft, but uh, but would fly higher than an SR-71 did back in the old days, you know, higher than let's say for example 66 or 70,000 feet, um, but be able to fly slow and with and um, having materials on it that makes it really hard to pick up, but having sensors and, and communications relay systems. On, on these systems uh, is something else they've been uh, looking at. So I just want to throw, throw that one out as an additional capability that they appear to be interested in. 
But in, in general, because they're going to be operating within um, uh, from from the, the shores, with some sort of going out um, for in, in these particular potential territorial uh, disputes they would have around the periphery, uh, they do have some advantages in terms of uh, in terms of being able to disrupt um, command and control C4ISR systems of potential adversaries and be able to maintain the viability and integrity of some of their own systems. Well, I'm going I'm to try and bring this back down, if not to Earth, at least to sea. But um, one of the one of the other things I got out of the paper was that uh, we need to have a, a very uh, a common operating environment um, or a common operating picture for the, our allies, and that among the other recommendations I took from the paper was that we our allies and the United States need to be much more sea uh, powerish in our approach to what the Chinese are up to. Uh, is that a, is that a misreading? Is that is, is this a local issue with respect to the areas we discussed before, the South China Sea and the and the Northern Sea and the Taiwan area, or is is this a is this a global issue because of the uh, the um, Chinese line of sea lines of communication that they need to have to continue to develop? Now, there's a simple question for you. You can answer in the next uh, two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, just a bit, but put simply, I'm not sure if it's just a you know having a, a, a sort of a maritime you know a common operational picture that focuses on the maritime domain, uh, but certainly maritime domain awareness, or actually just in general multi-domain awareness, is, is one way to put it. Because um, it's not just, of course, uh, again, this is my air force coming out, but it's not just the uh, it's just not the uh, the ocean or the sea, but undersea is very important, and on the surface is very important, and then of course. Uh, in the, the air is important, being able to have a common uh, common operating air picture all the way to space, um, and having and, and this is where it really can start. Because there's a lot of opportunities to be able to pool the resources that various countries have in the region, whether it's Japan or South Korea, Taiwan being actually critical, um, and of course uh, other others in South Southeast Asia. Being, being able to pool these particular re resources uh, is certainly something worth worthy looking at. They may be scared off by the military aspects of it, but at a minimum, I mean, it's not just military, but it's also, for example, natural disaster relief, uh, you know, emergency management, um, the non-proliferation, for example, being able to track North Korean uh, shipping um, from North Korea and then heading down to the South China Sea, um, and maritime domain awareness in general, uh, or I should say multi-domain awareness, it's not necessarily military use, I mean, it has a lot of potential. Um, and it's, it's done particularly in a way where you focus more on disaster preparedness response um, as well as non-proliferation and just human trafficking and these, you know, drug trafficking, these sorts of issues. It, it, has, it has a lot of potential and something I think that, uh, that, could, if, that could be uh, investigated quite a bit more. You know, part of the aspects of uh, you know, building our Asian alliances, you, know, you could argue from at least a contributory Point of view, the Australians are at the at the uh, the top of the tier group, but the Japanese are equally important, especially when you look at at potential and proximity. Uh, and there's a when you go through some of the vignettes or the discussion of not just you know using Japanese bases, but more Japanese. Uh, recovery from their World War II mindset, for instance. I thought the, the really interesting uh, point about the intermediate-range nuclear forces and some options that Japan has down the road when it comes to uh, ballistic missiles and integrating that into their military. But is it really realistic to expect um, Japan to, to put itself 
and risk of on the receiving end of military strikes from China to defend Taiwan, for instance, or to allow uh, its territory to be used to defend Taiwan. Uh, and if so, that, I mean, that would rec- I think that would, rec- that would represent a pretty big change in a mindset for a lot of our allies who've really become very dependent on the U.S. to do much of the, at least, if not the heavy lifting, at least the offensive capability. And if that represented a change in a mindset, what are some things that we can do to perhaps continue changing a mindset of some of our allies to really be full partners as opposed to auxiliary forces? Well, I, as a preface, um, yeah, offense, defense, and the eye of the beholder uh, kind of depends what side of the gun that you're uh, that, that you're looking at. Um, just as a, sort of a, a first issue, um, the, the Japanese traditionally uh, have been quite uh, quite averse to developing an ability to be able to do long range interdiction, uh, to be able to uh, to be able to uh, strike capabilities, for example. Um, they've had significant uh, bias against uh, having this sort of firepower delivery capability for, for quite a while. And so, you know, you, point, uh, point taken in terms of uh, uh, Japan being willing to be able to adopt some of these, some of these missions. But, um, but in terms of, you know, defense of Japan, uh, let, let's face it, um, if you're defending J- Japanese territory, for example, um, uh, in, in a, again, somewhere in the future, if just some really wild card scenario happens, where Japan and, uh, and, and China get into some sort of a scrape. Um, in a full-fledged war, one cannot defend by just air defenses, uh, air defenses alone. Um, and some strike capability is going to have to be, uh, is going to be needed for full, full defense. Of course, the question would be in, tem- in terms of this particular role, it's thinking the unthinkable. Um, but one, one, you know, the U.S. or Japan, uh, in terms of the alliance structure, would have to adopt this mission. I mean, to me, it, it, if that's going to, you know, if if there's an issue, for example, if there's a breakout of the INF Treaty, the INF Treaty completely goes away. For example, Russia has been talking about this for quite a while um, in terms of them feeling that their hands are bound. Why should they be bound by the INF Treaty? So if the INF Treaty goes away and suddenly there are opportunities to sort of, for example, a resurrected Pershing 2 program or a resurrected ground launch cruise missile program. Of course, we already have uh, uh, submarine launched uh, cruise missiles, but if there's a desire, for example, to have a land-based version to be able to you know, not a prompt global strike capability, but a, a regional, you know, prompt regional strike capability, and and deploying these on, on Japan is much better for the U.S. to do it than it would be for the Japanese. Um, but this is something that um, would would have to be discussed very, 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 very carefully um, with any partner in the region. Of course, on the Taiwan issue, that that is a political bucket of worms in terms of uh, the role that Japan will be expected to play in a Taiwan in a, in a, in a very unfortunate Taiwan contingency. Um, I think there's some expectation that the treaty uh, that sort of look at the areas surrounding Japan, or I forgot the exact term, um, possibly would include uh, possibly would include Taiwan. But um, these would these would be issues that would have to be looked at, and within the political context of the time that something uh, something would happen. I, I don't think these issues are worked out uh, worked out ahead of time, and just simply too politically contentious um, to be able to work out ahead of time. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody knows what they would do um, if there were. A, um, some sort of Chinese uh, attempt to rely on force to be able to resolve some of the political differences with Taiwan. Um, well, uh, one of my questions that I was going to ask earlier about Taiwan is, I mean, is it is it um, as I kind of 
got from the paper and kind of my own thinking is it is the goal with Taiwan to create sort of a porcupine, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily that it can win the entire battle by itself, but uh, such a such a, a uh, nasty thing to chew on that you really don't want to mess with them. Or what what exactly uh, should our how should we be helping them approach that situation? Well, uh, the, the key thing is um, uh, the, the idea is to be able to help Taiwan defend itself is a first priority. Um, and and the, the key thing is um, you know, the, the porcupine concept, of course, is, is one idea, but it's, it's general idea on a, the, a deterring uh, deterring the People's Republic of China. In other words, uh, ensuring that the that when leadership, the political leadership in Zhongnanhai, uh, together with the PLA leadership, make a calculation on whether or not to resort to use of force, uh, that they do the cost-benefit uh, calculus and that they decide that uh, that's just too much potential cost involved in using force. So deterrence is one way. And, of course, then then, the, then it gets down to defense because deterrence is what? Generally, deterrence is in denial. In other words, denying the PLA their ability to achieve their uh, political political objectives uh, and to complicate their military strategy. Um, and one, and, and in, in general, um, what would the PLA course of action be? There's a number of one of these things, and someone has to sort of figure out what what course of action that you're talking about. Is it just an air pan, sort of a bombing to win sort of air campaign, or is it a blockade scenario? Is it a full scale balls to the wall um, sort of amphibious uh, occupy Taiwan and then imposing your will upon the, the vanquished? But even if they uh, occupy Taipei, it doesn't mean they have the whole island. And, and so all these things sort of um, would lead in, sort of would inform um, coming up with a strategy. Uh, and of course, the next part of that would be uh, sort of the U.S. Uh, some sort of ad hoc coalition with the United States in terms of intervening to be able to enforce a, a halt in, um, in military operations. And so, you know, from Taiwan's perspective, I mean, some of the things uh, should be obvious. Um, uh, let's say, for example, you know, in order to be able to counter each and every one of these scenarios, short range, you know, some of the common ones, short range air defenses, um, smaller, smaller, uh, fast. Uh, uh, Ships uh, on the ocean, and to me, a big one, uh, a big one is uh, would be, of course, um, submarines, uh, diesel electric submarines, a uh, perhaps maybe some smaller, uh, smaller, uh, smaller uh, ships. So these are just some 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 uh, capabilities to me that would really uh, that would really that should be obvious. I want to uh, throw your way a, a question I asked our our guest last week because it's it's kind of related, and that's. We've been engaged in the wars we've been engaged in for the last 10 years and have really been, in many respects, bore-scoped on Southwest Asia. And you combine that with the fact that China has changed so much in the last decade, especially you know, two decades, that there are, in the general public, uh, some long-held assumptions about China what are some of those assumptions about China that uh, many people have that really are no longer valid, and what do they really need to think of when somebody says China? Well, uh, in terms of um, one of the things to think about is uh, it's not a lot of people assume that they know where China wants to go in the future. Um, in other words, that they automatically look at China as a potential threat. Um, Knows they have, and actually, it's never made quite clear what they think where China wants to be by the year um, uh, 2050, for example, or 2049. Um, for example, you know, in terms of do they want, do they really want to completely run the United States out of the region in terms of its alliance structures? Um, 
And so that's what, I and mean, that's just a question. I, I don't really know, know the answer, but I, I wouldn't automate. Of course, the territorial, territorial disputes and sovereignty disputes are obvious. But uh, that, that's sort of the first question, is sort of looking at where, where China's going in the future, because they may not know themselves. Uh, however, things that they're doing today sort of create a momentum uh, that could take off on, uh, on a life of their own, due to, for example, the PLA pushing for more uh, pieces piece of the overall central government budget. Uh, or even within that, second artillery or air force or navy uh, pushing their own pieces, and that that could take on a dynamic on its own. Another is this automatic assumption of China's rise. Um, my understanding is that Chinese themselves, I mean, use that word rise. It's peaceful development uh, is the term that they use, uh, because yes, they they could rise in terms of their economic power, and they are are certainly um, uh, certainly demonstrating significant uh, economic capabilities. But when you get down and you scratch underneath the surface, are they really that? Uh, that's scary in terms of uh, economy, particularly when you look at who's investing. Um, for example, Taiwan is a major investor in China. It's not really the Chinese. When you go into Best Buy and you buy a, uh, a cell phone or a computer, it may say made in China, but it's actually made in a Taiwanese factory in China. Um, but, uh, but these would be a, a couple of the things that I would uh, that I would ask. But yes, they're getting stronger militarily, um, and but uh, it, the, one should uh, really look at uh, different scenarios and not be uh, not be afraid about standing up for trying to discourage uh, uh, increased Chinese reliance on force to be able to solve some of the problems and that's where you need to have a strong United States uh, and a strong system of alliances to be able to at a minimum at least uh, to be able to provide a hedge uh, until the direction that China is going becomes more clear. Well, as, as you um is described in the piece and, and many other places. I mean, I'm sometimes amazed at, at a country that has a reputation for its subtlety occasionally just acts like the biggest bully on the block. I mean, some of these activities in the South China Sea uh, with respect to the uh, the Spratleys and some of the other islands out there, some of these other things they're doing with Japan, they seem so ham-handed sometimes. Is that is that just the the nature of, of – um, or is that more subtle than I think it is? Uh, what, do you, what do you see in that sort of situation? Well, I guess one way to look at it would be to ask, you know, always uh, tra- track down the sources, figure out who went, you know, exactly who said what, to be able to sort of do content analysis on media uh, to make sure there's not sort of media blowing stuff up. Um, but also look at other things that are going around the periphery. In other words, uh, there's a lot of struggles that go inside China, uh, inside Beijing in terms of uh, different factions. So sometimes one particular faction may have to sort of blow up an issue uh, to be able to maybe divert domestic attention uh, from their own problems they have inside. Uh, Taiwan is something that's forgotten quite a bit. Sometimes I wonder if, some, if China sometimes create problems intentionally in the South China Sea uh, just to be able to at least create the perception that uh, everything is fine on the Taiwan front, uh, when actually China has not at all. Uh, they're not rattling their saber in, on Taiwan as they are in the South China Sea. Um, but one sometimes has to ask the question, is this somewhat of a diversion? And the same thing, of course, with uh, with Japan. But um, but they, sometimes those, it's certainly worth asking. It's a good question asking why they do the way that they, they do things sometimes, and it doesn't really appear to be necessary uh, or even urgent uh, at that particular time. From if putting themselves in, putting yourself in their position, so I don't have the exact answer to that, but uh, I could formulate some questions. Well, on that note, Mark, we've got a tail end of a very fast hour. If could we just take a minute to. Uh, Tell us uh, what direction the 2049 Institute is going on, and if they wanted to read more what uh, you or the Institute has to offer, where would be a good place for them to go? Well, they can go on our, uh, what we produce is, is published on our, our website, www.project2049, that's one word, project2049.org. 
dot net, um, and what we publish uh, goes on that. And uh, in terms of myself, I'm going to continue to sort of look at uh, China, the directions and on Chinese uh, missile modernization, perhaps looking at a bit of the nuclear capabilities, um, I, and uh, of course continue to focus on on uh, the issue, you know, cross-strait uh, cross military and political issues um, in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan, and just in general, continue to sort of sort of uh, try to fill in some, some blocks and sort of fill in some gaps on understanding uh, about the future direction of the United States in the Asia-Pacific region. Perfect. And uh, thanks a lot again, Mark, for, for coming on uh, this Sunday for an hour. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank I you, I appreciate Mark. you inviting me. It's been fun. And thanks, everybody, for joining us live. And for those that got us later on the archive, please join us again uh, next time for Rats. And until then, have a great Navy day. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.